Hello, and welcome to Highlands Church Audio Sermons. Today, December 9th, 2018, we're continuing our series titled Knowing Truth, The Letters of John. In today's sermon, How Faith Changes Our Lives, Pastor Bob Wade will be teaching from 1 John chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. We hope you enjoy. In a world of disagreements, large and small. I don't believe that you exist. Go think whatever you want. Go ahead. How can a good and powerful God allow innocent people suffer unspeakable tragedies? But then there's all these questions, you know, about ethics and moral issues as well. And I would say, well, they're crazy for not testing what they think they believe. Just because you can't see it doesn't mean it's not real. It's as real as what you see. And, and I begin with the assumption that God is love. And love is love is love is love. I think that the orthodox, historic Christian tradition is this vast, diverse conversation that's been going on for thousands of years. We're going to be talking about faith and how faith changes us, how it affects us. It's more than simply something that just happens between the years. A lot of people actually think that's enough. That faith is simply something that, you know, I just come to a, collect a set of things that I believe are probably true and that's it. But true faith in the scriptures actually leads to love. First for God, then for other people, particularly those within the church. And then the scriptures would tell us it leads to obedience. That's the context of what we're looking at this morning in 1 John chapter 5. And my prayer is, is that this is going to serve as a litmus test for you. Not knowing where every single one of you are at, it's very possible for you to think, look, I, I, you know, I think I believe all the right things. Well, the question is, does it show up as having an effect in your life? That's what we want to look at. So if you're in 1 John chapter 5, let's read through the first five verses together. Verse 1 tells us that everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ, in other words, the Messiah, has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. And by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Now what John's going to do here is, John's going to tell us three things here in these five verses that are very important for us to understand. The first thing he's going to tell us here comes from verse 1, and that is that faith changes who I love. Now, let me read just the first part of that all over again. Verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ, remember I mentioned there that word Christ means Messiah, has been born of God. Now this is something that John has actually mentioned before. Back in chapter 4, verse 2, he told us that we need to believe that Jesus came in the flesh. And when I say that he came in the flesh, that does not mean that, well, uh, you know, he, he came and he was just a man and God, you know, sort of put his spirit on him at the baptism and then left him at the, you know, the cross and stuff like that. No, it doesn't mean that. To believe that Jesus came in the flesh is the idea that you would believe that he is 100% God and 100% man. Fully God, fully man. Then in 
chapter 4 again in verses 14 and 15. It's the, the call to believe that he is the Savior of the world. To John, faith is more than simply an intellectual thing. Faith changes us. In fact, the word he uses here in, in verse 1 for believe is the verb form of faith. Now, I'll take you back to fifth grade here. Remember, a verb is an action word. Something happens. Well, that doesn't seem to always be true of everyone who seems to call themselves a Christian. There are lots of people out there that would name the name of Christ but have no sign whatsoever, no look at their life that would say that they're different. This past week, I read through something called the Pew Report, and they said that nine out of ten Americans would say that they definitely believe there is a higher power in charge of all things. Well, that's an interesting thought. They definitely believe there is a higher power. My question would be is, is that word belief that they would use the same as the word belief that we believe the Bible uses? Does it mean the same thing? Because John is saying here to believe is to have confidence, to have trust, let me see if I can explain it to you like that. This is one of our new chairs that we use when we set up for a different meeting. If I take this chair and I sit it right here and I walk around and I observe it, wow, it's really put together pretty well. Some of this is actually like formed like this and, you know, it's not really cheaply done and it looks like it's strong and it's sturdy and everything like that. I can come to a belief here in my mind that that chair would hold me. But that's not a biblical faith. That's not a biblical belief. You see, belief when I comes when I can look at something like this and say, I believe this chair will hold me, and now I'm going to put my trust in it, my confidence there. Not everybody does that. For many people, you know, belief is way less than that. John here tells us, in verse 1, he tells us what we need to put our confidence in. He says that, we, that all those, that, or everyone that believes that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, I'm supposed to put my confidence in the fact that he is the Messiah. Well, what does it mean? Well, take your Bible here, keep your finger here in 1 John, and I want you to go all the way back to Isaiah 53. Back in the Old Testament, there's uh, some large books in there. Psalms is actually a large book, but Isaiah is after that, and it's before the book of Jeremiah. Isaiah 53. Because here, the Messiah is going to be explained to us a little bit. Now, to, just to give you an idea here, Isaiah 53 is such an important thing for us as believers because it was written 700 years before the birth of Christ and yet it will describe exactly what the Messiah will do. Listen to what it says here. Starting in verse 4, it says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, and yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. That's an interesting word, right? Transgression? Do you know what the word means? It means you knew it was wrong, and you did it anyway. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. 
All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Drop down to verse 10. And yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt. Did you catch what it said there? The Messiah will come and make an offering for guilt. Not his guilt, because he has no guilt. My guilt. Your guilt. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Verse 12. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, and yet he bore the sins of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Now, I want you to catch this, the importance of this word. Verse 5, he says, he was pierced for our transgressions. This is what the Messiah will do. He was crushed for our iniquities, the places where we, we just vilely did wrong. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. Verse 6, the Lord laid on him the iniquities of us all. Verse 10, his soul was made an offering for guilt. Verse 12, he bore the sin of many. In other words, the Messiah is going to come and die to take away our sins. I'm supposed to have confidence, not just that Jesus was a, a person in history, but my confidence is that I'm supposed to believe that he came and died to take away my sins. So let me see if I can explain this a little bit to you. Have faith. To have faith is to believe that Jesus came and died on the cross for my sins. Which means I need to understand that I am incapable on my own of taking care of my own sins. I needed Jesus to do that. Look, if I came along here right now and I said, look, I've got a billion dollars and I'm going to give it away to feed the hungry and the poor, you know what that would make me? The best person in this room, right? I'd be great. But it would not fundamentally make me right with God. You see, no matter what you give to God, it doesn't change the fact that right now you fall short, all of us fall short of the glory of God because God is perfect. He has no fault, no weakness, no issue whatsoever and we as a people are fundamentally imperfect. We all move towards death, we all have faults, we all have issues in life and so on my own I can offer up some nice things but I could never fundamentally be what the standard of heaven is and that's perfection unless God makes a way which is exactly what the Messiah came to do which is exactly what Isaiah 53 tells us that he does. He came and he was pierced for our transgressions, our faults, our weaknesses, our mistakes, our sins. And so for me to believe, for me to have faith, for me to take this and, and to put my trust in God is to believe that he would come, that he would go to the cross, that I needed him to go to the cross. I needed him to make a way for me. And then to believe, to trust in him. Folks, that is way different than believing there's a higher power. Do you understand what I'm saying? That is way different than saying, well, you know, I was, I'm a Christian because I'm an American, right? 
That's way different than saying, well, I was raised in a religious home and I went to church when I was a small child. We're not talking about that. We're talking about you. When you reach the place, where do you put your confidence? Where do you put your faith, your trust? John here tells us that because I have been born of God, this happens. I'm different now. I think differently. I relate to others differently. And according to verses 2 and 3, I'm actually going to live differently. That's the second point he wants to make here. In verses 2 and 3, he's going to tell us that faith changes what I do. Look what he says back in verse 2. He says, by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and we obey his commandments. Verse 3, for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. So according to verse 2, the change that happens, one of the changes that happens is obedience. Now, this is not just a John thing. Every single one of the apostles taught that obedience comes with the spiritual new birth. For example, Luke, in Acts chapter 5, writes about Peter preaching, and he says these words. He says, We are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. Paul, in Romans chapter 1, says, Through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of the name among for the sake of his name among the nations. The writer of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 5 said, and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Are you beginning to catch a trend here? 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, he says, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus and Galatia and Cappadocia and Asia and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling of his blood. Same chapter, verse 14, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passion of your former ignorance. Verse 18, for I will not venture to speak of anything else except for that Christ has accomplished through me to give the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed. I, I could keep going on and on and over and over again. The point being is this, every single time when the scripture talks about our salvation, obedience is something that follows. Now, I want, it, I want you to be clear here because I don't want you to get confused here. Obedience is not how you get saved. It has nothing to do with it at all. We're saved by grace. But obedience flows out of a brand new heart. That's what the scriptures will tell us here. Faith produces a love for God and a love for other people and then it produces obedience. If you think about it, it only makes sense. I mean, if I stop really and I say, well, I love God and, and now I see his commandments, I'm supposed to keep them, so I'm gonna keep his commandments, they totally go together. I mean, if I stopped and I said, well, you know, Thomas, I love you and you're my brother in Christ, we work together and we're really good friends, how could I possibly say I love him and then go into his office when no one was there and steal something? You see what I'm saying? Love and the commandments actually work together. If we love people, we're going to actually learn how to do the right thing, live the right way, treat them with the right sense of value. The point here is when love is true, it has a way of demonstrating itself. It shows up in how we treat others. That's why 
John begins in verse 2 with this little phrase. He says, by this. He's talking about the new birth. And so faith, when it's real, when it's more than just you know, collecting a set of thoughts in your mind, but when it really takes that moment where it places its trust in, it develops a love for God, a love for other people, and an obedience to the Lord. Go back to verse 3 here. Let me read this one more time. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, there's the obedience, and his commandments are not burdensome. So what John adds here at this point is that God's commandments actually become, when I have this new birth, they actually become a good thing. They're not stifling. They're not restrictive. They're not a burden. I mean, how does that happen? Well, it happens because we are born of God. There's a spiritual birth that takes place in our lives. I mean, the scripture tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, that you know, when we come to faith in Christ, all things become new. The old passes away, we become new. Part of that new heart is a newfound love for the Lord, a newfound love for other people, and a sense that when God asks us to do something, it's not a bad thing. What might have been a burden at some time back in your past, now it shouldn't be a burden at all. It's not difficult to live the new life. I mean, Jesus in Matthew chapter 11, verse 30, stopped and and said to the people that were walking with him, he says, you know, my yoke is easy. My burden's light. It's not that hard. Just love me. Love other people. I'll take care of it. Paul, as he writes to the Corinthians and in, in, excuse me, the Romans in chapter 12, verse 2, he says these words about He says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God. Now stop and look what it says about the will of God. What is good and acceptable and perfect. It's not like it's restrictive. Oh gosh, okay, I'll do the will of God. No. When my heart gets changed, when I've placed my confidence in Christ, the will of God is good, acceptable, perfect. It makes sense. When we love God based upon the changes that God makes inside of us, what is important to him becomes important to me. My priorities are supernaturally altered. I'm now taken from one life and put into a brand new life. I'm put on God's team. I mean, I'm... Uh, I'll use a sports illustration because, you know, all my kids played ball and so I'm going to use that illustration. How many of your kids ever played on an athletic team, a sports team, someplace, sometime? Okay, you're going to get this in, okay? And, and, you know, there's a lot of them out there, whether it's, you know, lacrosse or soccer or volleyball, baseball, you know, whatever the case may be. Let's say it's Saturday. Let's say it's game day. You load up in the car, you go down to where the fields are, You get out of the car, you walk towards where the fields are, you get out of the parking lot, and people go in two different directions. There's one group of people that will go over and they'll go behind the fence, and when they get behind the fence, they'll pull out the folding chair, and they'll set it down, and they're, you know, making sure that it's, you know, out of the sun a little bit, and they get something cold to drink, and they start chatting it up, or the official term is visiting, okay? Okay? There's another group 
that when they split off and that one goes back behind the fence, this one goes out onto the field. And this group of people will go out on the field and they gather for a meeting. And as they gather, they, they talk about certain things and all of a sudden they begin to stretch. And then maybe they run. And then depending upon the sport, you know, they throw or they hit or they kick or they do whatever they've got to do. Well, let me, let me give you the truth here. If you're on that team, if you're in that group of guys that are out there on the field, you are not envious of the people back over behind the fence sitting in the shade. It's not why you're there. See, you love being with your team. You love being with that, that group of guys or a group of gals there together. You, you're excited to play. You know what the team rules are, the team policies, and all of that, and you don't see it as burdensome. It's what you want to do. Okay, now let me translate this over for you. The same thing is true spiritually. See, when you come to faith in Jesus Christ, when you've placed your confidence in Christ, you want to be there. You want to be there. You, you want to be with the team. I remember I was 14 years old and I made this decision to follow Christ and I wanted to go to church. I didn't know anybody in the church. But here's what I did know. As weird as it might sound, I knew there was something about these people that I was supposed to be with. I knew it and I couldn't explain it. I knew God had birthed me from one life into a brand new one. When we get to that place, you know, we want to participate. We want to be in the church. We want to worship. We want to serve. And we know the rules because we study the book. And you know what? It's not a burden. It's not burdensome. It happens because we're born of God. Now, there's a third thing that he's going to tell us here. And that's in verses 4 and 5. And that is that faith gives us victory. Look what he says here back in, in 1 John 5, starting in verse 4. He says, For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Now, did you notice there that that word overcome was used three times? What do we have to overcome? I mean, why do I have to overcome something? Well, spiritually speaking, you know, every single day you wake up and the struggle is on. You know, the Bible tells us the devil who rebelled against God wants nothing more than for you to do the exact same thing. Then there's the world and the system of the world that is asking us to turn away from God and turn towards people and compete in this gigantic rat race we call life. And then there's my own flesh that's tempted daily to seek its own personal pleasures rather than God's will. But in verses 4 and 5, what John tells us here is how we get the victory, how we overcome. It happens because of our faith in Christ. It happens because of the new birth that takes place. Now this is really important that you catch this. Because from the moment of salvation... From the moment that you stop and it, not, you know, it becomes farther than just an intellectual you know, venture for you, from the moment that you really put your confidence in, you are assured of the victory. 
The moment your salvation happens, you are assured of the final victory. Now, let me tell you why that's a big deal. Because now you're not fighting for victory in your life. Now you're fighting from a position of victory in your life. And that's a big difference. Now I know that the Holy Spirit lives inside of me. Now I know that God has has a plan for me. I know God has prepared a place for me. I know that he comes alongside of me. I know that there are brothers and sisters around me that will walk with me through these times. The outcome is set. Look what happens here. Look at these three statements. The first one here is in in the first part of verse 4. He says, everyone who has been born of God overcomes. A better maybe word for you to understand than overcomes here might be victory. Everyone who's been born of God has this victory. It all comes as a result of spiritual birth, being born of God. Spiritual birth happens when you and I stop and trust in Christ to be our Lord and Savior personally. He keeps going here. In fact, what he says here is that everyone who's been born of God overcomes. That term there is in the present tense. That describes a continuous victory that faith gives me in my life. And it doesn't happen because I'm a good guy. It happens because God does a work inside of me. It's a supernatural event. Now, the second one comes from the second part of verse 4. Look what it says there. It says, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Now, here's what I want you to catch. This one is not present tense. This one is not ongoing. You know what this one is? It's past tense. What that means is, when it says, has overcome the world, that means your victory is a done deal. That victory that you need in your life, that assurance that you need in your life, The fact that God would promise to take you to heaven for you to be with him, that is a done deal. Somebody should say amen seriously on that one. I mean, I'm not even Baptist, but I'd say amen on that one. We overcome. We have the victory. Verse 5. Gives us the third one here. Who is it that overcomes the world except for the one that believes that Jesus is the Son of God? The victory here comes because of our relationship with Jesus. And so again, just like the very first part of verse 4, we overcome present tense based on our relationship with Jesus. So in one sense, look, it's important you catch this. In one sense, victory is ours. Because Jesus paid for my sin on the cross and I've trusted in him personally. And yet in another sense, I still live in a broken, dysfunctional world that every day I have to somehow navigate and get through. And so I need his daily presence every single day to help me overcome. Being born of God changes me spiritually and practically. It has this amazing, you know, double-sided thing that it happens with me. In one sense, it comes along, it detaches me from my old life and from the world, and now it attaches me into Christ and into his church. If you're not excited about that, something is wrong. He's guaranteed me heaven. He guarantees that he would put his Holy Spirit inside of me to live inside of me. And yet I still face the difficulties of this life until I go to be with him in heaven, so I still need to help me every single day for the daily victories to overcome. 
Being born of God changes us. It changes who I love because now I'm going to love God and you know what? I can't even see him, but I love him. And you know the crazy thing is, out of that, I begin to love all of his other children too, even if I don't know them. And if you don't think that's true, I want to challenge you, go on a missions trip sometime like when we go to Haiti and watch the believers in Haiti and they'll speak Creole and we're speaking in English and how God will just bind the two people together. And you know how that comes? By faith. It has nothing to do with socialization in the world. It has everything to do with a brand new birth. That even if they can't speak my language and I can't speak theirs, God makes us one. So it changes who I love, but it also changes what I do. Now I begin to obey, and I don't see that obedience as a difficult, horrible thing. It's not a burden any longer. It's what it means to play on his team. These are the clear birthmarks of the faith. If they're not in your life, I want to encourage you, you need to make sure that you need to move beyond what's here to get to here. That that confidence is lived out in your life because you've made that decision to turn your life over and trust in Christ personally. And the result of that new birth that comes along that should be the encouragement for you is you overcome. You have victory. God has given you the victory. And he'll give you victory every single day. He'll walk with you for that. The question is, do you have it? Do you have the birthmark? Do you have the victory? Would you do me a favor? Would you pray with me? Appreciate it, but just for a second... You'd uh, stop and bow your heads for a minute, close your eyes, not because there's anything spiritual about it, because I just want you to focus in on you for a moment. If you do a quick observation of your life, are the birthmarks of faith there for you? That you love God, that you love other people, and that doing what he says is not a burden? If that's true, then praise the Lord. You you need to be living an overcoming life. You need to trust that he's taking care of things. You need to walk with him daily so he can help you overcome the issues of life. But if you take a look at your life and that's not true about you, could I encourage you that perhaps you haven't gone far enough that the collection of facts that you've got in your mind has not changed over into a commitment you could make that today. You could change that all over today. Today could be the day for spiritual birth for you. I'm going to pray a prayer and I'm going to invite you to pray after me silently if you've never done that. So you could begin your own personal walk with Christ and make sure that your heart is right before the Lord and start experiencing that love for him and for others, that sense of obedience to his commands, and that ability to overcome. Dear God, I need you. I'm asking you to come into my life.
I'm asking you to take control of me. I believe that you sent your son to come and die for my sins. And the only way that I can appreciate my salvation is to trust in you. Let me ask you a question. No one's looking around. But if you prayed that prayer, I'm going to ask you to do something for me. At the end of the service, there's going to be a group of people that are going to be down here. It's their ministry to stop and pray for people. I'd encourage you that if you prayed that prayer, would you just wander down and pray with one of them? Let them encourage you a little bit about your newfound faith. Lord God, I pray that those that have prayed that prayer, that it would be real in their hearts, that they would see the fruit of you at work and changing their lives, and we'd experience the joy of being overcomers because of your power, Lord. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Church, we overcome by the blood of the Lamb because the Messiah came and died for our iniquities. Our testimony is that you and I would place our confidence in him and trust in him alone, and it changes our lives. Our love for him, our love for each other, our obedience should should bolt us out into the world to be overcomers. God bless you. Overcome today.